Hi there. If you are a regular listener, you know that we have just finished our latest series, One Night in Snake Park. And to mark the completion of the series, we wanted to bring the team who produced the podcast together. Since this is 2020, we had to meet online in a form of a webinar. But the bright side here is that we recorded the webinar so you can listen from the comfort of your home. This is a lightly edited version of that recording. My name is J.D. Ramalapa. I'm the editor-in-chief of Sound Africa, and I had the privilege of moderating the discussion with team members who joined from three different continents. Hope you enjoy the discussion. by introducing the team. We have um, Elliot Moleba here with us, who is the narrator of One Night in Snake Park. And he is also a South African Oslo-based scholar, writer, dramaturg, artist, and director. He is a contributing author to the book, I Want to Go Home Forever, Stories of Becoming and Belonging in South Africa's Great Metropolis. Next to him is the executive producer of One Night in Snake Park, Tanya Pamploni. She is co-edited the migration. She co-edited the book, I Want to Go Home Forever, Stories of Becoming and Belonging in South Africa, along with uh, migration expert Lauren Landau. Tanya Pamploni is also currently the managing editor of the Global Investigative Journalism Network. We're also very fortunate to have among us um, Lauren Landau, who is the Professor of Migration and Development at the University of Oxford and the South African Research Chair in Human Mobility and the Politics of Difference at the University of the Redbartisrans Africa Center for Migration and Society. He's also a frequent media source on regional and global migration policy debates and has been published widely in the academic and popular press. We also have Rasmus Pitts. Um, Rasmus is Sound Africa's founding editor-in-chief and also current producer and editor of One Night in Snake Park. And last, but very much not in the least, we have John Bartman, who is a podcaster, dramatic audio editor, and music composer from Cape Town, South Africa. I want to start open this discussion by talking about the words I was trying to find to describe the feeling of um, listening to One Night in Snake Park for the past six weeks. And honestly, I couldn't really find them. So I went to a writer that I really admire, Kenyan writer called Yvonne Adiambo Awo, who in a 2018 essay called Reading Our Runes, Post-Colonial Stories That Float From Afar, described writing about the colonial period as a form of an autopsy, an autopsy as a means to see for oneself. And I will quote from, from that essay. She says, an autopsy is like inviting the human being to, um, hum to become a humble inhabitant of a situation in order to speak from a place of experience, observation, and encounter. Within autopsy are notions of a naked, visceral, going deep to witness and access unseen perspectives that reveal another facet of the truth about the human condition. 
I personally think that that's um, what you have done or the team has done in producing one at Snake Park. I feel as if you have provided us with a fuller and more nuanced perspective of xenophobia in South Africa. And I guess in many ways, One Night in Snake Park is some kind of autopsy of the events, um, of an autopsy of the events, of the events leading up to the death of 14-year-old Pure Mahori five years ago. And to start the conversation, I will open with you, Elliot. We already have a sense from the first episode that this story was an offshoot of your story that you wrote for the book, um, uh, I Want to Go Home Forever. And what I want to know is, what was it about Pio Mahori's story that made you want to go back there and tell it again, not once, but twice? Um, so when we were putting the book together, one of the main things was to try and collect as many different entry points into this discussion or debate uh, within a South African context. And one of the stories that I felt like we were not really talking about a lot um, was the bystanders, you know, so you have the perpetrators and the victims, but when these crimes happen, um, how are they impacting the bystanders, you know, so the parents or the partners that are left behind or affected uh, from uh, from having to deal with, you know, somebody who's either been killed or has killed someone uh, in this way uh, and in this situation. And, um, and that's how I sort of gravitated towards finding um, the stories that in, in some ways I thought, you know, showed the impact uh, of what it means to, to be affected uh, secondhand by this uh, violence. And that's how I found... Um, Nombuiselo, Spiwa's mother, and felt compelled to really tell that story. Once I interviewed her, and um, I think Tanya and I and uh, Lauren, uh, you know, we sat down with the story that had so many questions that were still unanswered. Uh, you know, very basic questions that Tanya and Lauren had for me, that I had for the mother, and the mother and the father didn't know like what happened to, to, to the perpetrator, you know, was he sentenced or not? When I went there to do this story for the first time, the mother didn't know these questions. And, you know, so we, I think kind of all agreed that this story needed to be looked into uh, a bit more thoroughly. Was it easy for you to sort of enter into this type of conversation with Pure Mahori's mother? Um, you, because the story was already make, made headlines back in 2015. So what more could you sort of get? I mean, how was her response to you when you approached her? She was kind of fed up with the media uh, because, you know, people had come to to the family to, to get their side of the story uh, and have made all sorts of promises, really weird stuff. Um, uh, like uh, one person had offered to write to the president uh, for a street name uh, to be, uh, to have a street named after Spiwe. And um, 
or to have a holiday uh, on the day that he was killed, you know, kind of like a Hector Peterson sort of modern day uh, monument of sorts. And, and so the family were not very keen to engage with the media. And that sort of also provided some barrier for me to access the family and to, to, to get them uh, to really trust me that I was genuine uh, in, in, in my interest in the story. And I wasn't sure for a while that I would actually be able to, to, to get them to really completely be honest. But I think uh, with, with, with the way that we have been consistent with going back uh, and talking to them and um, really showing up when we say we will and delivering on some of the things that we had promised, you know, like having the book and stuff. I think that really allowed them or allowed us into their fold. And so now when we went back for this to, to really do something a bit more in depth and talk to them more, I think they were a lot more open. Tanya, when you also went back with Elliot, um, you... You, there's mention in the first episode that you were following a hot tip from somebody within um, the, 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 the criminal justice system saying that there was something that just was not right about the case. Um, did you find um, the, 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 the something that was not right about the case um, when you went back? Thanks, Katie. The, I think we, we wanted the transcripts before we published the book. We wanted to have the transcripts of what happened in the court case because we couldn't, the family couldn't tell us what happened. So we needed the transcripts. So, um, you know, Elliot went down to the courthouse. We emailed, we tried our, you know, it was, it was a long process to try and get a hold of them. We eventually got a hold of the transcripts and it was, it just didn't make any sense. How did this story that exploded across the headlines, you know, internationally. Um, how did a, how did the shooter do you know have a wholly suspended sentence? It just didn't connect. And we were you know talking to people within the um, the justice system who had said to us just that there's something not right about this. Um, so we had to kind of, but that's all we could. That's all we knew is there's something not right about this. Um, and so we were just digging around to find out what is not right about this. And there were so many things that were not right about this. Um, yeah, there, there were so many things. I don't think we ever found the kind of like the smoking gun, although I think there are a lot of smoking guns. <laughs> I mean, I, I think listening to the uh, last episode kind of um, completed the circle for me because then I felt like I was very clear about who was to blame for um, for the xenophobic violence. But before we get there, I think what I want to say is what I appreciated a lot about um, One Night in Snake Park was that it did not confine the main characters to like a single story or narrative. I appreciated the fact that Spio Mahori was a person, like a full individual, a young boy who was an avid mechanic, a trickster, a loyal friend, a passionate cyclist, and a child who eventually got caught up in conditions in his community that he couldn't really, that were outside of his control. And so I think that really um, is something that stands out for me about this podcast, especially since it speaks about a, a subject that it's so, um, that's very sensitive and triggering. And maybe I will go to you, Rasmus. Why was it like, I mean, did you find it hard to to bring forth that nuance in this story without just um, sticking to stereotypes? 
Yes and no. Um, yes, because it's always difficult when you're trying to make an interesting story. I mean, in this case, uh, everybody, Elliot, Tanya, myself, and, and other people had collected so much tape, so many interviews. And we then had to like put it together in a way that was not only compelling, but also uh, did justice to people as actual people and not just plot points. Um, and I think that's the eternal difficulty of, of making uh, sort of creative nonfiction really. Like um, where's the line of something being interesting and something being um, also uh, truthful and, and nuanced. Um, and I think the truth that, you know, I think came out in this story um, was that the big perpetrator in this case was not one evil person. It was an entire structure. Um, but stories are told more easily through characters rather than structures. So that's the difficulty of it. Um, I, I think we tried, all of us, to, to strike this balance. Um, and I also think it was easier because we ended up being able to interview many people on different sides. Um, and by granting them enough time, you know, it was also very clear, like we couldn't have made them into like simple one dimensional characters because that would just have been wrong. Um, so, you know, I hope that you all listeners and the people we spoke to um, think that we did uh, justice to 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 the people who, who you know um, gave us their time and and such. As we all know, music is like a really um, uh, important part of this podcast, or at least transporting people from one place to another. And I must say, John, when I first listened to um, <laughs> One Night in Snake Park and I heard this drum beat, I was just taken aback. I was like, "Whoa!" You know, are we celebrating violence? Are we are we uh, praising people for being for looting and killing? But as I went on, I sort of I feel like it started to it begin to make it began to make sense to me why that music would go. But um, maybe you can take us on a journey of, of what inspired you to choose that particular type of music um, for this podcast. Yeah, that um, opening piece, you could call it the theme piece, I suppose, um, that warm beat. I wanted the, the tone that got set to be very unambiguous. Um, there's, there's really only a very limited amount of... Uh, a setting that can be communicated with the drum beats. The rest of the music in the series is fairly generic and fairly sort of made for radio, but I thought it was important upfront to offer something that really stood out and also gave a, um, a South African feel to the piece, just so that it was very clear from the start, you're either going to listen to this piece and go down the rabbit hole with us or into the townships of Soweto and Snake Park, or this is not for you entirely. And, and, and putting that fork early in the road, I think, was important for me, um, you know, it, it, in terms of what I can contribute. That's, that's something that I can do, set the tone quite quickly. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, Elliot was saying people are already liking the, the song, um, Elliot. What did you like about the beat itself? Uh, what, I, what I've really found interesting um, is it... You know, the, the, the choice of music not only really just locates the palette within a South African society, 
but more specifically within a contemporary South African society, because you know we're not talking about uh, something that you recognize from centuries ago. Mm. Uh, you know that that we sing. You know, it's not your typical struggle song or mm. you know anything that cliche. But you yes, know, it really hits you like as a contemporary South African sound. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to break the format a little bit because there is enough of that um, <laughs> that sort of weepy um, apartheid-themed storytelling. There's far too much of it. What I wanted was a sort of a reboot or an update or okay, here's where we're at now. Yeah. Here's what's here's what's happening. Here's just a little bit fresh. Um, not not to try and you know, catch the ear of young people or anything who mostly are the ones who listen to cool, cool music, but mostly just to just kind of update us to to what's actually going on. You know, it is a hard-hitting, eye-opening sort of piece. It, it makes you jolt, and that was deliberate. That was intentional. Okay, no, thank you for that. But as you're talking about how we're not, uh, you know, stuck in the past in terms of music, but I think when it comes to xenophobia, it seems like nothing much has changed since um, 2008. And Lauren, I just want to come to you right now. And I mean, most of us now have seen the headlines um, of, on xenophobia here in South Africa, but like, could you maybe comment on what is different between what happened in 2008 What's what happened like in 2019 and the conversations that are happening today? I mean, I think that there's two things, right? There's the violence that's happening on the ground. And in some ways, there's enormous continuities there from 2008. I think we, we see it here that this is not just sort of <clears throat> people from the townships who hate foreigners going out and attacking them, but that it's, it's really implicated, involved with all sorts of township politics, with economy, with frustrations with government, uh, with with various actors, some of whom are, are sympathetic, some of whom are, are very sketchy. And that's very much what's happened since uh, not just 2008, that was happening already in the 1990s. And it's continued, it, it peaked in 2008, we started again in 2015. I think what we've really seen change, and, and <clears throat> that's perhaps what's most worrying, is that well, this kind of violence and these sort of stories that we're hearing about have been fairly common on the ground. It sort of made its way into national electoral politics. And what you're seeing now, Gauteng is, is proposing a, a township economic development bill expressly, expressly aimed to keep out foreign shopkeepers. This is something that is now part of the national discussion. And my hope and what, what, what you see in a, in, a, in a story like this is I think a way of, of challenging that, of not falling into those sorts of easy, foreigners are the ones stealing our jobs, foreigners are the victims, foreigners are the, the perpetrators. There's all sorts of different nuance here and hopefully that can complicate the story somewhat. I don't have great hope, politics is not a, a space of nuance, but mm -hmm. I think this, this sort of story really helps us understand where that violence has come from and, and where it is today. Um, last year, the the government um, set up the National Action Plan to combat racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. I mean, um, has that been effective? Has it come into force? Has it done anything to to maybe curb this type of violence? I mean, all those of us close to it found it very appropriate that its acronym was NAP because it's basically it, it, it was 15 years late coming after, it was supposed to be just after this Durban racism conference in 2002. And then when it got there, it, it had almost no power, no biting power. 
But perhaps what's most important, if you read that document closely, it basically explains xenophobic violence as a natural outgrowth of people being poor and frustrated and seeing foreigners doing well. And so in some ways, even though it's supposed to be against xenophobia, it just reinforces exactly the same kind of, of discourse that you hear surfacing somewhat in, 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 the, in the podcast and in the book, that it's foreigners who've stolen South Africans' future. And that's, that's in the National Action Plan on xenophobia. And if it's going to be in that National Action Plan, then really what, what, what hope do we have uh, for, for, for trying to counter this? Mm. I mean, for me personally, and I think maybe podcasting is about sort of um, making stories more personal to you. I think in the end, I couldn't find... Um, I mean, I know who I'm blaming for it, but I couldn't find, in terms of the key characters, I couldn't really blame them for the actions that they took um, because I was able to sort of see the the... The, the story from someone from Sipua who was dying on the pavement, from the shopkeeper who was, you know, trapped in his uh, little um, shop at the back, fearing for his life, um, from the mother who blames the Nyaupe boy who walks around. Do you feel that the the, the outcome of this case um, was fair? And I think this question will go to all of you or any one of you. Like, do you think that this is the best sort of outcome that could have come out of a complicated case like this one? I think we all kind of agreed, like at the end, that like that that it was the best outcome that we could expect um, from all the circumstances that had happened. I mean, you know, you know, Sapiwe died. Of, it, you know, it's, so what happened after Sapiwe died? Um, that Yusuf di didn't that the shooter didn't go to prison. I had one human rights attorney say to me what good would it do to send that man to prison? Like, what purpose does that serve? And then on the side of the Mahoris, it's like, you know, what purpose did it serve to not have them even heard in court? Like, how do you not communicate with the family? So, I mean, at the outcome, the outcome is what? So Piwe is dead and um, this family lost their son. And this man who shot him because he was afraid for his life is now kind of exiled. Um, is that the best we can expect? I mean, sadly, you know, because of the circumstances, I think so. And um, maybe I can add to that because I think the court in itself, um, in, in this case and in most other cases, I think kind of follows uh, all the stories are similar in the way that, you know, you go through something, you find some sort of acceptable narrative, but it doesn't necessarily have that much to do with what actually happened on the ground. And what really struck me in this uh, story in speaking to everybody that had been close to what had actually happened was it didn't fool anybody on, on the ground either. Um, I mean, I remember this one instance, which is, I think, is in episode four of um, of, the, of the podcast, where um, I uh, witnessed this debate between uh, Abdul, the shopkeeper, and a and a client. And one of the things that you know we end up talking about is um, I, I ask the the guy who is very uh, critical of foreigners, and you know, 
he blames them for all the classical things of fake goods and and um, and expired stuff and stealing jobs and all of that. And 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 I asked him like, but why are you blaming these guys? Why not the ones that have power, like the police, for instance? And and he's like, no, he knows that it's not their fault, but this is the only kind of justice that he has access to. He can, uh, and I think not him, I have no uh, evidence that he's ever participated in looting. But I. But my impression is that in, in many ways, this is the closest thing that people who are in, in some way um, stuck in, in certain structures, the closest thing they get to justice is sometimes the ability to lose or to loot or take out their uh, frustrations on, on foreigners. And the people with actual uh, power to change anything, like like what Lauren was uh, talking about, they don't really care enough to actually do anything about it. This was such a high-profile case, right? Like international news, as, as you said earlier, Tanya. But when we started digging into the aftermath, it, like in terms of what had happened on the street in Snake Park and in the court system, no one had really bothered to do anything about it and they still don't you know that to me was was um left me feeling a bit despondent on the on the uh, possibility that that justice is something achievable in these cases uh, currently i mean like for me i feel like um the two things maybe that 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 stand out the fact that the police did not um, take the statement from um, the second victim at all and they you know blatantly lied about it i mean if we are to believe um the second victim, and then also that they they didn't, you know, like the the judge's response to we don't have a statement from him was oh you don't have one, you know, and so I don't know I just feel that um, it's it's a combination of uh, a laziness maybe or incompetence or um, a lack of will I'm not sure which one it is and I'm 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 quite not sure like what steps we can take to redress that I mean anyone who feels they want to add something to that. What's really difficult about these cases, um, at least when you look at them on a structural level, as everybody's been echoing, is that you you kind of have this roller coaster. And if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know that once you get in, it's going to follow the track unless something goes horribly wrong. Um, and it, it matters almost uh very little what people on the roller coaster do because it's going to move in its uh programmed direction and and in many ways when you know we look at what happened in snake park and um well across the country you see a kind of a similar thing and of course in, in every roller coaster you have the people who are uh, control the levers and make sure that everything is right and um and they are often quite invisible uh, in, in the process um, because, you know, they're, they're not part of the make wish. And so, you know, when you do a story like this, the police uh, who are pulling one of the major uh, levers in this um, structural processing um, don't want to talk, uh, you know, and we were quite lucky that the judge wanted to talk, uh, even though that was with some discretion. Um, and so you really get a sense that you can't change much if the people pulling all these important levers are not 
committing uh, to a conversation. It's so difficult then to, I, I guess, open up a discussion like this on a level that it would actually make a big enough impact. Um, the a Human Rights Report recently just talked about, um, I mean, they interviewed about 51 uh, respondents who were victims of xenophobic violence in Johannesburg and Cape Town. And some of them mentioned like the delay, like they they notify the police when they feel attacked or that, that they are about to or they feel in danger. But um, the police take um, long to respond to those calls, up to three days in some cases. And um, I think in this story in particular, there was a week-long wait, I think. I'm not sure, but ask them to be corrected. So basically, in other words, this could have been prevented if the police had acted um, sooner. Yeah, I mean, one of the difficult things, and Rasmus can also, I think, add... Um, is we know that the police were there that day. And so, you know, one of the things that ha is not being talked about, in, in uh, especially with the police on the table, is, you know, how did they fail to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, just to add to it, so I just wanted to say, Jedi, the week you're talking about is probably um, what Abdul, the, the shopkeeper at the shop, not, not the guy who shot, but who is running the shop where CPU is shot now, um, this was while we were reporting there last year in, in September, there were attacks in State Park and, and in the whole of Gauteng at the time. And we spoke to Abdul the day after there had been uh, attacks in the neighborhood and then a few times after that. And that's when he said he had called the police a week after uh, he told me they were still not, they had still not come to him, you know, he called the police and for a week, they were not there. So, I mean, you said a week, we don't know, he might still be waiting <laughs> as far as I, as far as I know. Um, but I think what, what strikes me and just to supplement exactly what, what Elliot is saying is like, that's the exact shop, you know, it's a couple of years later, but you know what started at some point in 2015 there, like one of the biggest waves of xenophobic violence in years at that point, Nothing has significantly changed there. And yet, when the shopkeeper calls the police for an incident happening right there at the same time, the police don't even show up. So there's not a lot of learning happening um, as far as it seems from, from, from what I at least heard from, from the people there. You know, it's, what's interesting about this story is it is, well, it's a story about xenophobia and, and kind of an investigation into foreigners. That story of a police that is is absent from the townships is not unique to this case in any way. I mean, I think that we have to understand that, and that's part of what this this helps us see is that people live in these environments where where what the government does, what the police does, seems arbitrary. It's unpredictable. You you take care of yourself and and you make your own way. And and I think that. We, Elliot, you're saying there's no, or you've been saying there's no learning. I think the police have learned a lot. They've learned that they don't have to do anything, that they're not accountable. Why would you take the chance? Why would you put yourself in harm's way? Why would you defend a foreigner in a community that hates foreigners? Police can't win from that. They've learned. And I think that's part of what's most disturbing is that they've learned that there's no accountability, that they can get away with this. And, and for the most part, Staying out of these things is, is how they come out ahead. They'll, they'll be there as quickly as they can when there's looting involved. 
because they want to get their stuff uh, to take home with them. But if it's about keeping people safe, that's not not something that they do. And not just for foreigners, but for everybody. I mean, and it's a well-known kind of like accepted thing. I mean, one of the not so like great <clears throat> recordings that we had was with what with a with a police one of the police officers from Soweto that I that I met. Um, and you know, we had to disguise his voice too much. Um, but the but the point of it was he was like, I don't arrest people. And he was just like, you know what happened in this case. Everybody got paid off. I mean, it was just like he was so honest about like, this is not functioning. I don't arrest people because why should I arrest them? And and of course the justice, of course somebody got paid off. Of course this happened. Now we could never show that or prove that, but it was kind of like, you know, he he in his mind, this police officer who works in Soweto is just telling me, you know, point blank the system doesn't work. I'm not arresting people and there's corruption. And if you, I mean, and who doesn't know that, you know, that was like, that was just the way he put it. Yeah, no, I just briefly wanted to chime in on the last point. Um, I'm not a journalist, but my, my interest in these types of stories, um, after I read Paul uh, Paul McNally's book, which was an expose of corruption in uh, on Decker's Road up in uh, Johannesburg somewhere, um, I, I just, you know, you get the general impression um, from your bubble of comfort that the system is so, it's so beyond repair um, that, you know, there's there's no incentive for anyone to come out and blow the whistle on it. The stakes are way too high. Part of the reason that I've been involved in this project on a personal level for the last two years, I mean, on some level, I have to put my, my expertise to work in, in bringing this type of stuff to light corruption-related storytelling about South Africa, um, particularly in, in an accent and a language that people can understand. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Like, it's, it's, it hits me at an emotional level how important it is to tell the story that we're, that we're telling here. I'm not sure, Tanya, you wanted to um, comment. Yeah, you know what? I mean, just kind of banking up what John said and like the kind of the persistence of all of us who worked on this project, it was there was one thing when I started this, this project is like, I wanted, I, I wanted us to always just keep in mind that Sapiwe Mohori, the 14 year old boy was at the center of this and that he killed, he was, he was killed and that his parents had no voice whatsoever. Um, and then after, you know, Elliot comes back and is like, yeah, they didn't want to talk to us because the media did all this stuff. I felt personally responsible as a journalist, um, who would, you know, kind of like part of dropping the balls. And, I, you know, like I just wanted to try and make good on one one case, you know. Um, one of the things, though, that I appreciated about One Night in Snake Park as well was the journey from of, of, of the shop or the, the current shopkeeper from Somalia um, to South Africa. I'm not sure if South Africans don't know enough about what's happening in the rest of the continent, um, but I, I think it, it was nice to actually get to experience um, what it might be like to be a, a foreigner seeking asylum, like running from one war into another. So... The it also shows that the problem of, um, you know, xenophobia is a big one here in South Africa, but it's also um, connected to the stories of what of what's happening in other African countries. And I'm not sure we're doing enough like reporting from both sides. When you start digging into almost any story, at the end you realize how everything is connected and how everybody is connected to each other as well. Um, 
you can't solve xenophobia or problems in Snake Park by looking at Snake Park. Uh, you have to look much bigger than that, and even bigger than South Africa, because when somebody like Abdul, as a young man, um, is willing to cross a desert, to sail on a boat, you know, fearing for his life for weeks, to cross illegally many borders, to end up working in a shop in Snake Park, you don't have enough force in Snake Park to stop that movement from happening. These issues are like massive and, and concerns all of us at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know. I, I do sense that there's a little bit of like despondency that comes, but just before I hand over to you, Lauren, maybe you can add like the, you know, some of the solutions, the, the things that perhaps um, citizens can do and government can do um, to kind of change this train or this direction that we're heading in. Well, I think one of the things that really needs to happen is, is precisely what this podcast was trying to do and what the book that it, it stems from was trying to do, which is talk about this in different ways, to talk about this in a way that doesn't put the rights of foreigners against the rights of, of poor South Africans, as if protecting one hurts the other, to recognize, as Rasmus was saying, the interconnection. And I think what, what needs to happen on this is, is not anything that needs to happen, particularly around xenophobia, although that's also welcome, but it's to understand how these places are governed. I mean, the, the kind of the myriad of connections and corruption and, and dead ends and frustrations that are described in this podcast are what millions of South Africans deal with every day. And until those are unraveled, until people can start to see a, a way to their future and to see hope, you're not going to address xenophobia. I mean, clearly improving the police, improving uh, sort of things uh, can help. But I think what we really need to do is, is this kind of investigation, this kind of stories, and so that we understand what it is that we're grappling with in, in all of its dimensions. And, and yes, it can lead to despondency, but until you know what you're fighting, any kind of solution is it's not going to really work. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for the next Sound Africa series coming to your feed in a couple of months. So when I think African, I just think me. African is all about what is inside, what the family believes. That's a good feeling, it evokes a good feeling inside. There are many ways to think African. I'm not a soldier, I'm not a rebel. What do you think? I'm just a fighter, not a soldier, not a rebel, just a fighter. Until then, stay safe and sound.